Malcolm X, what brings you here today? Well, I'm uh, out here to uh, see the successful expose of the New York City uh, school system. It proves that you don't have to go to Mississippi to, to find a segregated school system. We have it right here in New York City. Are you supporting this boycott? Yes, I did support it. I came as an observer, and I, and I supported it because it shows that the problems that the, the uh, white liberals have been pointing the finger at the southern segregationists and condemning them for exists right here in New York City. From the minds of two doctoral students, Race to Education is the podcast that explores the impact of race on education in America. As your hosts, we dive deep into the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latinx communities as they navigate the intricacies of learning in the United States. This is Race to Education. On February 3rd, 1964, an estimated 460,000 Black and Latinx New York City school children, along with their parents, staged one of the single largest boycotts of the civil rights movement. Their protest? It was against the city's segregated and dilapidated school structures that they attended. This boycott came 10 years after the historic passage of the U.S. Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education, which declared legally segregated schools inherently unequal. But in 1964, there had been little done to alleviate the inequalities plaguing Black and Latinx students in New York City. The clip you heard at the beginning of the show is of Malcolm X attending the boycott. His words are significant in understanding how we think of and discuss segregated U.S. schools. And unfortunately, his statement remains relevant in 2020. According to a 2014 report by the UCLA Civil Rights Project, New York schools are some of the most segregated in the country, more segregated than schools in Alabama or Mississippi. A common assumption is that racism is geographically bound. That is an issue of North versus South. And the reality is that racial segregation can be found throughout the United States, even in a liberal place like New York City. Fast forward to 2020, under Mayor Bill de Blasio and school chancellor Richard Carranza, the issue of school segregation remained. When Carranza took on his role in 2018, he came ready to tackle segregation, famously retweeting a video clip of a group of Upper West Side parents being angry about a new school integration plan. And for the better part of a school year, the diversification of the specialized high schools in New York City has been highly contested by groups unwilling to relinquish space to Black and Latinx students. In this episode, we speak to Dr. LaRue Lewis McCoy, an associate professor of sociology at New York University's Steinhardt School of Education about Brown versus Board of Education and the impact that it had on segregated schooling in the United States. Dr. Lewis McCoy's research centers on educational inequality and the intersecting roles of race, class, and place. Dr. Lewis McCoy, welcome to Race Through Education. Glad to be here. It is great to have you here. Can you help us understand why Brown v. Board is such a landmark case in the integration of schools? Brown versus Board of Education is probably the major starting point for most people when they think about race and schools in America. And it's an absolutely important place to start. But I think there are two places I always encourage people to think about prior to the Brown decision. The first is that Brown is actually a culmination, almost a class action suit of multiple grievances that black citizens brought against the United States for inadequate schooling. And when these smaller cases were happening in Virginia and South Carolina and Clarendon County, what families were actually saying was, 
there is a way in which access to schools is unequally distributed. So James Anderson's work has beautifully illustrated the ways that black citizens were committed to education, but the taxation system, the way that the state doled out education literally made black folks pay double for what they received. So it was, if you want a black school, you'll pay for it, but you also pay for the white school that you don't have access to. And when these smaller sets of cases were going forward, as there was a developing legal strategy, there was a real question about what are we going for? What would justice look like under the context of a segregated society? We know that at the base, there had been Plessy versus Ferguson and Plessy versus Ferguson, which was uh, originally a case based on streetcars and racial segregation or trains and racial segregation. It said that separate facilities could be equal facilities, even though we know that the color car was never equal to the white car. And as this got ported into education, it meant, well, let's create a black school and let's create a white school. And as many folks were advocating for change, they were concerned that if we rushed into this idea of desegregation or integration and the combining of black schools and white schools, that black schools would bear the brunt of it. While we lived under segregated circumstances, there were often a number of schools that were doing well, in particular because you had educators who were concerned about the well-being of black children. So you can look at the work of folks like Vanessa Siddell Walker, who kind of troubles this idea that moving towards integration was the ideal path for education, particularly for black folks. Because at that time and so contemporarily, black people are asking a very basic question. Can we actually have access to quality goods, period? We see we're in a moment now where people are talking about, well, brands are rushing out to declare their solidarity with black life. People are saying, oh my gosh, this is a real concern. At a basic level, the black experience in America has been, hey, remember that thing called humanity? Can we have some of it? Can you mm -hmm. actually treat us as full citizens and give us the opportunity to do the things we need? We don't need anything special. We need that baseline that you have seemed to never fully engage with. Now, Brown versus Board of Education tends to get a lot of credit in the fight for desegregation of schools. But there are other cases that occur before that, right? Brown uh, v. Board of Education becomes a huge spotlight. But there's also prior to Brown on the West Coast, a case that comes out of California, the Westminster case, in which there's a similar set of conversations that are happening among folks of Mexican descent and even trying to figure out what racial category Mexican folks belong in. Today, we talk about things like Chicano, Latinx, but there was a lot more fluidity around the designation of race and ethnicity and its meaning. And the Westminster decision lays some of the groundwork of how we even think about the role of social science, how we think about race and inequality. But because it was a regional case, it didn't become the basis of the National Brown v. Board case. And in that case, the predominant thing that we come away with is Justice Warren's phrase, folks, you know, separate facilities are inherently unequal facilities. And there is a deep truth to that. Anytime someone tells you, yes, you can have yours, but yours just happens to be over there behind the door and you can never see what's behind door number one, you should be a little bit leery. There may be something that they're hiding. But what we soon see is that the Brown decision itself is a monumental decision because it actually breaks in a way that most folks weren't expecting. This is in many ways the birth of the modern civil rights movement in 1954, and people are excited about it. Derek Bell, who is one of the germinal scholars of critical race theory, looks back at Brown and he had worked on Brown and he said, well, we got a lot of things wrong. What happened is in this moment of interest convergence, it was in the interest of the United States, particularly white Americans, to not look like villains. Coming out of the wartime period, it's hard to go abroad and fight bigotry when the foundation of your country is bigotry. So it looked like it was a tossing of a bone to this quest of civil rights. 
But soon we look in round two has to be decided because the Supreme Court says things are unequal and that folks should do something about it. But then the question is, how fast do you move? One of the biggest criticisms of Brown was that the Supreme Court was really unclear about setting up a system or a timeline to desegregate schools. What have been the consequences of the court's vagueness? And Brown, too, most famously, the Supreme Court came back with a, at best, lukewarm set of guidance for folks. And it said, when should we desegregate schools? When should there be the desegregation of resources so that Black children and white children have equal amounts? And the Supreme Court answered famously with all deliberate speed. With all deliberate speed, I often compare it to if you were to imagine a mother or a father speaking to a child and saying, you know, your room needs to be cleaned up. And then the child's like, well, I'm trying to figure out when to do it. And they're like, with all deliberate speed. My mama would never say with all deliberate speed to me. She'd be like, <laughs> now, if you don't do it by this point in time, then here come the consequences. The Supreme Court very much demonstrated they weren't interested in providing consequences for those who are unwilling to comply with desegregation those who were unwilling to comply with the dismantling of a racialized system that was benefiting white folks disproportionately and meting out consequences to black folks. Instead, the Supreme Court was like, well, no, we'll actually toss it back to the folks in Southern states who actually did the segregating to begin with to determine the timeline. And this is unfortunately an age-old American trick. We can look at the period of Reconstruction and look at the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, whether he's writing in in Souls of Black Folk or in Black Reconstruction, in which the question of how do you move forward and you turn the power back to those who are already determining unequal access. And so what it meant was a true slow dragging of feet. It also meant that for many folks, because Brown versus Board of Education came out of Topeka, Kansas, right? That's where the lead case was. People imagined segregation fundamentally as a Southern phenomenon. It was not. Segregation was in the South. It was in the Midwest. It was in the West. It was in the Northeast. But it allowed many people in areas outside of the South to hide behind, oh, the real racists are down South, and they're the ones who are resisting desegregation. As we fast forward the clock, we actually see that the South desegregated on many measures far quicker than the North did, because mm -hmm. the North was able to say, well, we're not the bad guys here. It's the folks in the South who were segregating by law. It's the folks in the South who have outwardly resisted desegregation, and the North kind of rested back. And the truth of the matter is that Brown 1 and Brown 2, while they established some good jurisprudence in terms of awareness around segregation, the actual consequences that were identified by it were weak, and the ways in which people were able to fight Brown off tooth and nail for now decades demonstrate that there were some things that we got wrong with Brown. So what's the difference between desegregation and integration? For me, I make a distinction between desegregation and integration, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think about segregation as the formal separation of two or more groups, it can be de jure by law or de facto mm -hmm. by practice. We have a handle on that and we know it exists. Desegregation is really the leveling of those laws or address of those policies and practices that are separation by law or by practice. But integration actually is something further down the line. And if you read the writings of folks who were involved in the civil rights movement, they talked about integration as after there had been legal barrier leveling, but also the psychological and the social intermixing of folks. It's not actually something that can be legislated. Just because two people are sitting in a room doesn't make them integrated at all. And in fact, our quest for integration itself, I think in many ways is folly because it does nothing to deal with resources. It gets at this terrible idea that, oh, if kids look different and they're sitting together in the same spaces, they'll do well. False. But what really happened at Seattle and what really happened in Kentucky for me 
wasn't that much of a legal milestone. In fact, yes, of course, there were challenges, and these are systematic challenges to desegregation efforts. The parents that were in Seattle, the parents that were in Kentucky, they weren't just a random set of parents who said, we don't like the idea that schools are being desegregated. They were actually propped up by a right-wing establishment, the same establishment that attacked affirmative action, the same establishment now that's constantly working against school desegregation, race consideration, and policies. What those decisions did was they narrowed the window, they narrowed the practices. But still, most school administrations don't actually look at what the Supreme Court said. They simply say, we can't do desegregation, we'll get sued. That's not what the Supreme Court said. In fact, that's not what the Supreme Court has said, whether you're talking about K-12 education or higher education. They're saying you have a narrower framework to work from. And many times that means school systems that don't have the political will say, we give up. And so I think that's a fundamental danger. For me, I will always encourage if you're in an environment or in a place when people say, we can't, we can't, we can't, ask them, what does the law say you can do? Because when you begin with can't, that's a limitation of possibility. And that's how schools have acted. You know, Madison, I wonder if we're focusing on the wrong thing when we ask for integration or even desegregation. Could it be that we need a redistribution of resources to the underfunded schools? Certainly. As a graduate of New York City Public School and an educator here in Brooklyn, I've seen how education is grossly underfunded and segregated. I remember going to high school in East Harlem. This was around the time when Bloomberg was corporatizing education and fully taking control of the newly minted Department of Education. It was at this time I noticed disparities between schools. I went to a good but now defunct Academy of Environmental Science. My cousin went to a high-performing school just one floor above mine. There was a stark difference between schools. First. Her school had a bunch of white kids who attended there. My school was mostly black and Puerto Rican. Her school had seasoned teachers. My school had a high turnover rate of Teach for America types. Her school had access to technology and other resources. We had limited access to technology and other resources. The connection I made at 15 years old was this wasn't right and something had to be done to better distribute those resources and opportunities. So Madison, what's really interesting is that I noticed that some of the same complaints that we heard at the top of the show with that clip from the 1964 boycott is that a lot of these issues that faced Black and Latino families back then are still true to this day. And it seems that we don't discuss what happened in 1964 and that there's little attention that's paid or given to the issues that are facing our communities now. Yeah, I think that what we see is that it's, it's almost I need to forget the past so that we can move forward. And I think that that's a really big problem that we see in education and education policy. We don't actually readdress the past so that we can make sense of the present. And I think that that's kind of why we're trying to figure out well, what happened actually in 1964 right here in New York City. One of the first things that most people don't understand is that the largest civil rights demonstration around school desegregation happened in New York City. This was the place. It is actually larger than the March on Washington, but it's part of a history that we forget because it comes in a moment in which there are sets of tensions between the demands of black communities, the demands of white communities, the demands of unions that are largely and predominantly white and non-black and the tension that is there. So I encourage people to go back and there's a ton of writing on it, but one crisp section around protests comes from Matt Delmont's book, Why Busing Failed. And I encourage you to read the chapter on New York City to go back and think about the moments around Ocean Hill, Brownsville and teacher strikes mm -hmm. and tensions because it's literally what leads us to 2020 in which every demand for change around public schools gets funneled through one person, and that is the mayor. 
In 2020, New York City schools remain under mayoral control, and that is your first and central issue to understanding what redress will be. So when you look at something like the findings of, of the Civil Rights Project, yes, New York State is segregated, the New York metro region is segregated, New York City is segregated, and they are segregated by design, right, historically and to contemporarily, where people live and how they go to school is not happenstance, is actually social engineering, and it has been baked into the system. School segregation impacts students the most, especially students of color. The adults are making all these decisions, but really students should be part of the conversation as well. We see student advocacy groups emerging and creating platforms to make sure that city council is held accountable for making our schools more integrated. Here's an excerpt from student leader Jace Valentine of Integrate New York City. She documents her experience when she realized that her school was segregated and her next step into advocacy work. I honestly, I didn't even realize segregation was like a thing, even though I went, I was the only black kid in the school with a thousand plus students from K through eight and then in high school. My school was 42% Asian, which was the majority of the school, and then like 20-something percent white and something else Latinx, and I believe blacks was the minority. Integrate came to my school, and it was for after-school program. My school is segregated. I didn't know this. And then I looked at my old school, and I'm like, yo, my old school is segregated. And that's why I had so much opportunity. That's why I had so much like resources was because my school was segregated. And through Integrate, I worked with some city council folk. I was on the Fair Student Funding last year, which is a task force created by the mayor to figure out the budget of students. And I realized that there are so much disparities and it's disgusting. Like, because I'm black and I go to a predominantly black school, I'm not supposed to have as much resources as a predominantly white or Asian school. And that's where I realized and I was like, yeah, I got to do something about this. Because in middle school and well, K through eight, practically, I knew what racism was from a young age because I was the only black one. And being the only black one, I heard all the names. I was called Aunt Jemima. My dreads were called tarantula legs. I've been through hell and back. I just thought it was what happened, but I didn't even realize that it was just because my school was segregated. And there was no culturally responsive. There was no trained professional teachers that could even teach or correct the way students were acting because they didn't know better either. And I realized that in when I was in high school and Integrate came and I'm like, well, it was when they started asking questions like, did you ever have this? Did you ever have that? Was your school predominantly white? And I realized in that moment, it's like something clicked in my head and I was like, okay, I get it. So we're going to do about it. And since that, I've been with Integrate. I've been rocking with Integrate. I've been trying to work against these segregated schools. This narrative is all too familiar with students across the city. They are either very conditioned to only be around people who look like them, or they stand out because they're the outsider within their community. There are some important points to be made here based on our observations. First, students clearly know when something is not right. Second, the lack of school resources make it harder to make the case that we should continue to operate like this. And third, there seems to be a lot of red tape with the adults. And I think what's important is centering the voices of those who are directly impacted by segregated schools. Having a student-led group like Integrate New York City is reminiscent of the community organizing that happened in 1964. Questioning who makes the decisions has always been a concern, which has only increased with mayoral control, which effectively silenced community-based school boards. The problem is now we are forced as people in New York City to appeal to the mayor to do the right thing when we have destroyed all of the community mechanisms that actually have weight. 
for me, anytime I'm thinking about policy, I'm thinking about the problem, I'm thinking about the intervention, and I'm trying to think about what are the tools we have to leverage change. Because the community has been functionally removed in a clear and real way, right? So we have lost a school board that governs schools. Every type of governance that we have that has community voice is still largely advisory. So whether it's those who are appointed by the mayor to be over schools and diversity and gifted education, they make recommendations. Whether it's folks who come together as community councils, they make recommendations. And yes, the mayor has also appointed a chancellor and Carranza, but still all of these are recommendations. What happens is that community voice gets funneled and narrowly ends up being governed by a narrow set of folks. The first thing I would say is if you want to actually desegregate schools, if you actually want to deal with what happens with schools, return the power to communities. Until you start at that place, you're going to have a losing game. Because what we saw now more than 10 years ago with the lawsuit around finance, right, the Alliance for Quality Education lawsuit, we saw that large schools, central city schools were underfunded. We saw that there was a mandate in the changing of the formula of funding, but we also saw once a recession hit, the state lost all will to pay that money. Now there are billions of dollars owed to schools where black kids and brown kids have been concentrated, where black institutions and brown institutions have been divested in, and there's been no will from the state nor the city to rectify that. Now COVID hits. All of a sudden the conversations around what do we do to desegregate, those all get put on a back burner. The issue fundamentally for me is that black interests and black voices always get put on a back burner in moments of crisis. And there are too few mechanisms for black folks to have control over the schools that their children are in. I want us to rethink this arrangement. People have to ask the question, why are we still under mayoral control in 2020? There's so much money owed to New York schools. According to Alliance for Quality Education, the state owes schools about $4.2 billion. We know that money does not solve the issues we have in education, but it helps with leveling some of the resources needed for students who still attend segregated schools. The pandemic doesn't make it any easier. The Department of Education is still considering massive cuts. On top of all of this, there's still huge economic disparities between residential communities. Whether you are for de Blasio or not, whether you started for de Blasio and ended up in a place where you're not, why would de Blasio have that much control over our schools? Why would de Blasio and Carranza still not have mechanisms for the community to be fully engaged? Because much of this is about a system of maintenance and trying to make sure that white interests, white values are maintained. So when Carranza goes into the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side and they talk about desegregation, yes, they get fought tooth and nail. And yes, Carranza speaks very tough, but Carranza doesn't have the full control or power that he would need to desegregate schools. For me, I think Integrate NYC's five R's are wonderful. I think their name is terrible. Integration <laughs> is largely a frame that's been advanced by white interest and white civil workers, but black civil rights folks gave that phrase up very quickly. Integration is a concept that I believe supports white interests, not black interests and values. We can talk about some different formulas in which are in different languages that we can use, but I'll start there. And these are really great questions for us to think about, which leads us to another conversation on equitable schooling. Mayoral control maintains the status quo and further marginalizes those who are already vulnerable. It is a topic we definitely want to cover on a later episode. We're so grateful that you joined us today. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find you? You can always find me at my website, www.professorlewismccoy.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Dumi, D-U-M-I-L-M, Lewis McCoy. 
plenty of folks call me LaRue. A lot of folks call me Doomy, as my friends and family and some enemies even call me. I am currently working on two book projects. One is called Stealing School, in which I kind of use opportunity hoarding as a lens to talk through some popular education cases so you can understand in more complex and intersectional ways of how inequality is produced now and what can be done. The other book that I'm working on is based out of the work in Westchester County called Suburban Spoils. So thinking about who gets what in suburban space and what has been gained and lost. Dependent upon when you're listening to this, if you don't catch it live, you can catch the replay. On Friday, I'll be doing a panel with some tremendously talented scholars around suburban protest, policing, and possibilities, including Willow Longamum at University of Maryland, as well as Andrea Boyles, who's a great scholar out of St. Louis. And I'm always just constantly trying to build with folks. My research is supported in part by great community organizations like Community Voices Heard, which operate inside and outside of cities. And so hopefully you can find me wherever the good fight is. We would love to reimagine what New York City would look like if all schools represented the diversity of New York City. We need to fully understand Brown v. Board and what it meant for Black and Brown communities. A court ruling means nothing if we don't intentionally and authentically enforce those rulings within education. We must hold institutions at all levels accountable, no matter how many obstacles we face. Segregation was real in 1920 and is real now in 2020. Nothing much has changed, but we must continue to agitate and disrupt racist systems together. There are many criticisms of Brown, some that ask if this was the right move. Outweighing the cost versus benefits is important, at least for peace of mind. I think of all the Black educators and administrators that were suddenly out of a job because of this need to integrate schools. Integration was not a way to bring white children into Black or Latino schools. The onus was always placed on Black or Latinx students. And while I do appreciate that this declared segregated schools inherently unequal, it still did little to change the pervasive inequities that remain. Our schools are now more segregated than they were at the time of Brown. And schools that serve predominantly Black and Brown students remain underfunded and under-resourced. So where do we go from here? Is this the time to look at how our schools are funded and reimagine the process? Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at racethrougheducation underscore podcast. You can also visit us at www.racethrougheducation.com for podcast updates, highlights, resources, and more. And finally, let us know how you feel. Send us an email at racethrougheducation at gmail.com for a chance to have your questions read on the show. Thanks for listening to Race Through Education. We'll see you next week.